All right. Well, thanks so much for letting me uh, be here, and uh, always love uh, love being uh, being at pre-trib. Thank you, thank you, Tom. I want to thank my home church, Plum Creek Chapel, for the gracious way they give me time off all uh, throughout the year to come and speak at conferences. And I hope you'll take the time to stop by our table out there, the Not By Works Ministries table. I've got uh, a lot of my family here. We've, I've got three of my daughters, my wife, and one granddaughter on this trip with us. So I hope you'll come by and say hello. Love for you to meet them. And I'm uh, really uh, proud of my kids. And, of course, my granddaughter is just the most beautiful thing uh, in the world. So come see if you agree. Um, it's always great to be back in Dallas. I, I My dad was born not far from here and raised, actually, in Dallas. And uh, he taught me at a young age to be a Dallas Cowboys fan. So we are huge Cowboys fans in uh in our house, and it's kind of it's great to be in Dallas, where where hope springs eternal for the Cowboys. You know, it started out great, then they went through a pretty rough patch, and they kind of turned it around last week. Hopefully, that's a sign of things to come. But uh, I thought you'd appreciate a little Dallas Cowboys humor. You know, someone asked, "How do you, how in the world can you keep Tom Brady from winning another Super Bowl?" Seems like every year he's winning another Super Bowl. Well, someone suggested the answer is pretty easy: just trade him to the Cowboys, and he'll never win. Another Super Bowl. A friend of mine was giving me a hard time, texted me Thanksgiving morning uh, as we were getting ready to watch the game. He said, you going to watch the Cowboys game today? I said, no, I'd rather watch football. And of course, they, uh, they actually didn't play very well that day. Uh, but like I said, they turned it around uh, last week. Another uh, thing that occurred to me driving from Colorado into Dallas, you know it's been a long time since the Cowboys won a Super Bowl. When, as you drive around the Dallas area, you start noticing that they're using this sign to show people what it means to social distance during the uh, pandemic. So that uh, it definitely has been a long time, 26 years. My kid, my boys are 22 and 20. They don't believe me when I tell them the Cowboys actually used to win uh, Super Bowls, but uh, they really did. They really did. So I'm going to talk about one minute before the second coming. When we study the end times, we Often, especially uh, this type of crowd, we tend to, to do it from a forensic, more academic perspective. We like to identify the sequence of events, the details about what will happen. We like to compare Scripture with Scripture and cross-reference between the Old Testament prophecies and the New Testament. We love to display our conclusions in chart form and feel confident about all of our uh, paradigms and eschatology. But sometimes it can be helpful to go beyond the theology of it all and imagine what things will be like as the culmination of God's plan of the ages unfolds. And so what I hope to do in my session is just take us back and, and, and through God's word to Revelation chapters 14 to 16, the lead up to the battle of Armageddon and, and the second coming of our Lord, and try to paint a picture in our mind's eye. What will it be like moments before the triumphant return of Jesus Christ, our Savior? So the, the overarching chart that I'm going to come back to a few times throughout this uh, session kind of puts us right here, right at the end of Daniel's 70th week, that seven-year tribulation period uh, as uh, the battle of Armageddon takes place and, and Christ comes back. Of course, we know from Daniel there's going to be a preparation period of 75 days before the official commencement of the kingdom. But nevertheless, he comes back to take the throne and inaugurate the long-awaited Messianic kingdom. And since we're going to be camped out in Revelation for my session, I thought I'd give you a quick overview of the book of Revelation. Uh, you can see everything in blue there is sort of the chronological sequence of events as revealed through the book of Revelation. The stuff in the middle there in black print represents these little interludes or supplemental information that uh, kind of adds to the narrative a bit. Uh, but we're right there at the end of the seven years. Uh, this is not really drawn to scale, and by the way, neither is this chart. You see the seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments at the bottom of the screen. Those are, uh, you know, kind of overlap that way to indicate, as we believe Scripture teaches, that the seven seals... When the seventh seal is opened, it opens up seven more judgments that are announced with trumpets. The seventh trumpet announces seven more judgments that are represented as bowls. Uh, but I believe the bowl judgments really 
take place probably in the last two or three days of the tribulation. And obviously it's hard to represent that in, uh, in chart form here. So it's not really drawn to scale, uh, nor is it here. The bold judgments really uh, are the climactic event of the great day of the Lord's wrath that bring us right to uh, the return of our Lord. So let's dive in with starting with uh, Revelation chapter 14. To put it in context, uh, in chapter 13, uh, God has revealed through the pen of John the defeat of the forces of evil and talked about the mark of the beast. Now he turns to the triumph of the forces of good. Uh, Dr. Thomas, Bob Thomas says it's the opposite side of the picture, a victorious stance of the Lamb and his followers after their temporary setbacks portrayed in chapter 13. So chapter 14 essentially answers two questions as I see it. In the first place, it answers the question, what about the 144,000 Jewish witnesses and their followers who refused the mark of the beast? And many of them were martyred. What about them? Uh, remember, they were introduced back in, the 144,000 were back in chapter 7. And then the second question that I think chapter 14 answers is, what happens to the beast and his followers? Chapter 14, like the four chapters immediately before it, is one of these supplemental interludes in the sequential order of events that I talked about a second ago. Uh, it's what we call a proleptic. It's a sort of anticipatory of what's about to come. It's foreshadowing, you might say. And chapter 14 provides encouragement by pointing ahead to the ultimate triumph for those who refuse the mark of the beast. It is as if before getting to the final judgments of God's wrath, the bowls, God says something like, I know things are getting bad. The wrath of Satan through the beast is uncontrollable. The tyranny is almost unbearable. But hold on. Blessing awaits. Justice is coming. So we see in chapter 14 a series of declarations, as it were, directed at, at or about various audiences. And the first thing we see in the first five verses is a, a message to the 144,000. Well done. Well done. As a picture of the millennium, verses 1 to 5 show the lamb in place of the beast, the father's name as the seal on the forehead of the 144,000 in place of the mark of the beast, and of course the glorious Mount Zion in place of the satanically controlled earth. Verse 1 we see, Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. Then I look introduces three new scenes in this chapter, verses 1, 6, and 14. And uh, behold emphasizes the greatness of what John is about to see and recount. Behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion. John saw in this proleptic scene a time yet future, at the end of the tribulation, when Jesus Christ returns to the earth. Second coming, of course, doesn't take place here chronologically. We don't get to that till chapter 19. But John saw it as if it were happening in his vision here. He saw the lamb standing on the earth on Mount Zion with the 144,000 Jewish evangelists that God had sealed for the tribulation. And he paints a vivid contrast between the gentle lamb standing and the dragon of chapter 12 that was pursuing and the evil beasts that were rising up in chapter 13. After I heard, and, and I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. And they sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. A new song in the Old Testament was a song of praise to God for new mercies or some mighty act or some manifestation of his power. You see that again and again. But the, there are three occurrences of the pronoun these in this verse that identify the 144,000 of special honor here in verse 4. These are the ones who are not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These were redeemed from among men, being the first fruits to God and to the Lamb. So in the first place, the 144,000 deserved special honor because they remain celibate 
during their seven-year ministry. They had not had physical relations with women. The nature of their calling and purpose was too great to be distracted by that type of romance. Paul, if you remember, said something similar to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, encouraging them to remain unmarried because of the nature of the distressing times in which they lived. Second, the 144,000 deserved special honor because they followed the Lamb faithfully during their lives. This, of course, would have been especially difficult in the time in which they lived, the tribulation. Remember, the 144,000 were sealed for protection by God, but it's not like they lost their free will. They were still human beings. They had a job to do, and presumably they could have succumbed to the pressure that many people did in that day. But they believed the gospel, and they, they stayed true to the task at hand, and they fulfilled their mission. And then thirdly, they deserve special honor because they represent the first of many other Jewish believers who will enter the millennium as living believers. If you go back to uh, the chart, uh, we're right here at the end again. Uh, by the time you get to that point, of course, with the seal, trumpet, and bold judgments, there's so much devastation and so much destruction and so much death on the earth. Most believers, not all, but most believers will be beheaded, uh, martyred. Uh, there will be some that hide out in the hills and survive and endure until the end, but most will be uh, killed. Uh, and then, of course, you have the unbelievers. There, many of them will die, too, because of the destruction of the wrath of God being poured out on the earth, as well as the wrath of Satan in this final cosmic uh, climactic seven-year period. But when you get to the second coming, uh, there will be, of course, two uh, groups of people, as there are at any time in human history, believers and unbelievers. Believing Jews will be supernaturally regathered into the land, having believed the gospel, because as Paul said, before they can be delivered into the kingdom, they must first believe the gospel. And uh, faith, comes before, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. How can they call on him in whom they have not first believed? And we read about uh, this supernatural regathering in many Old Testament passages like Deuteronomy 30 and Isaiah 26. And, of course, Jesus himself talked about it in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, 31. So they are supernaturally regathered into uh, the land. Uh, that's believing Israel. But then, of course, there are believing Gentiles. Those are the ones to whom Jesus will say, Come ye, blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. These will be the ones who enter the, the kingdom in their physical bodies. They uh, repopulate the earth. They, uh, they procreate and have children. Those children, of course, like all human beings, will be born dead in their trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2.1, and they'll need to be saved. And we know from uh, comparing Scripture with Scripture that by the time you get to the end of the millennial phase of the kingdom, there will be yet another contingent of unbelievers who rejected the gospel and never were saved. But at this point, at the beginning of the kingdom, as Christ comes back to inaugurate the long-awaited messianic kingdom, there will be uh, a group of believers who survived the tribulation. They weren't killed, and they're the ones that enter the kingdom in their physical uh, bodies. The unbelievers who are still alive at the end of the tribulation are the ones to whom Jesus says, Depart from me into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And they, of course, will not enter the kingdom. Then, of course, you've got believers in their glorified bodies. The church has already been rescued seven years or more than seven years prior at the rapture, and we will be coming back with Christ to help rule and reign in the kingdom. Revelation 19 talks about our return with him. Uh, Old Testament saints will also receive their resurrected bodies there at uh, the second coming of Christ as well. So the kingdom will be made up of uh, initially only believers, some in their physical bodies and some in their glorified bodies, but nevertheless only believers. But over time you will see unbelievers present. But it's in that context that the book of Revelation tells us that these 144,000 were the first fruits among Israel. Because if you look at the opposite end of the seven-year period, at the beginning of the tribulation, when the Antichrist signs the peace treaty, according to Daniel 9.27, the only people right after the rapture that are left on earth are unbelievers, right? Uh, so initially, I believe, right off the bat, somehow these 144,000 get saved. They get saved the way any human being from Adam forward gets saved, and that's by faith. Uh, we don't know the details of their... Uh, faith, whether, that whether God en masse just gathers them together and declares the gospel somehow supernaturally or whether 
individually they find a gospel track or they hear, have heard the gospel but believe it after the rapture, but somehow they get saved the same way everyone gets saved, by faith. But then God supernaturally sets them apart and they, believe, I believe, minister throughout the seven-year period and they are really responsible for the initial harvest of souls among those who believe the gospel during the tribulation period. Of course, as the tribulation goes on, uh, they're not the only ones sharing the gospel. There will be believers who got saved after the rapture who then share the gospel with others so that, according to Revelation 7, there's a great multitude of every nation, tribe, tongue, and language that uh, get saved during the tribulation. Uh, so, But these 144,000 represent uh, the first fruits. And then verse 5, we read, And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Uh, they're described as those who had not fallen prey to the greatest deception ever seen on planet Earth. Jesus Christ called it that as he talked about the tribulation period in the Olivet Discourse. So what we need to understand is during that seven-year period that the 144,000 are set aside, set apart to do the work of the evangelists here and spread the gospel, it is a time of unprecedented deception as Satan, I believe, indwells the Antichrist, tries to rule the world in the greatest satanic tyranny ever. Satan, realizing his time is short, having just witnessed the rapture, pulls out all the stops. And uh, he feels like he's got one more chance uh, to usurp control and, 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 and take the throne, if you will. He tried taking the throne in heaven. Uh, that didn't work, and so now he's trying to control the earth. In fact, the Bible tells us that the whole world currently is under the sway of the wicked one. This is, uh, he's the god of this age, the prince of the power of the air. And uh, he comes, as, he, as we read about in Job, uh, to and from to and fro all over the earth. And so this is that cl final climactic battle. The one frontier that Satan has yet to be able to conquer, at least as we look around us at the reality that we live in, is life. You know, he's conquered language with deconstructionism and, and all of the amazing, crazy things that are happening with language. He's conquered marriage. He's conquered gender now. Um, but the one thing he cannot do is create life. But he's certainly trying, and so are his satanic co-conspirators on earth. Uh, these 144,000 resisted the transhumanist agenda to build back better by creating human 2.0. Transhumanism uh, involves the merging of man and machine. It's a redefining of humanity. It's a direct attack on the image of God in man. The 144,000 during that climactic time in human history did not go around repeating the lies that had been pouring forth from the one world government leaders. Sound familiar? as we see the setting of the stage today. They didn't go pointing to Romans, 1, Romans 13 and say, we've got to submit to the government no matter what, so point me to the nearest drive-through tattoo center where we can line up and get the government mark. They understood the deception, and they didn't fall prey to it. The Great Reset is also referred to as the Fourth Industrial Revolution. It's basically a techno-tyranny. Klaus Schwab, that Satan worshiper himself, yes, literally a Satan worshiper. If you don't believe me, check out our Spirit of the Antichrist DVD series and I'll show you the proof. But the fourth industrial revolution, he said, will affect the very essence, listen to his words, of our human existence, a human experience. Of course, by now you all know uh, the uh, World Economic Forum's eight-point uh, agenda. Number one is you'll own nothing and you'll be happy about it. Klaus Schwab said, quote, the mind-boggling innovations triggered by the fourth IR from biotechnology to AI are, listen, redefining what it means to be human. He said, quote, the future will challenge our understanding of what it means to be human from both a biological and social standpoint. He said, quote, already advances in neurotechnologies and biotechnologies are forcing us to question what it means to be human. It's called transhumanism. Trans, as you know by now, is a very popular prefix. It, it basically allows you to mean whatever you want it to mean. You just add trans to the beginning and it suddenly changes all of the empirical facts. For example, for example transgender or transnational, right? Or here in Dallas, you, know, you, you might even consider the Trans World Series champion. 
Indians. I mean, this would really come in handy for the Rangers, who are one of six MLB teams that have never won the World Series. It might be the only way they ever win it. Or, and this next one is for Dr. Mike Stallard. This idea of trans could be very helpful for the Detroit Lions, you know, the trans Super Bowl champions. Never won a Super Bowl. Or how about this? How about this one? Someone who never won a presidential election could be the trans president of the United States, right? You just put trans in front of it, and suddenly, suddenly you are whatever you want to be, right? So I get into this idea of transhumanism a lot in a lot greater detail in our uh, 18 video, 14 hour DVD set, Spirit of the Antichrist. But the 144,000 Jewish evangelists during the time of the greatest deception ever seen on earth will stand firm for humanity, made in the image of God. And they won't take the bait, and they're commended for it. Verses 1 through 5 present a powerful, satisfying picture of the triumph of these missionaries at Christ's return. They served faithfully. They completed their mission. And an untold number of souls came to faith because of their ministry. Well done. In the next section, we see a message for unbelievers during this time, reminding them of the urgency of the hour. I believe verses 6 and 7, the message is, time is short. For unbelievers. Having described the scene of the 144,000 witnesses at the conclusion of their service, the scene now shifts to the heavens where an angel proclaims the gospel. The baton is evidently passed in the final hours of the tribulation to a supernatural gospel proclamation rather than an earthly missionary one. Let me explain why I think this is the case. We read, then I saw another angel, and of course this is one of those then I saws that signal another scene in this vision, flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. The angel had an everlasting gospel to preach. Euangelizo is the verb there. To the worldwide population. It was everlasting or eternal because it has eternal significance. Now, scholars are pretty much all over the map when it comes to the identification of this everlasting gospel. But we do know one thing, the text is clear about the essence of their message. We see that in the next verse. What they were saying was, fear God and give Him glory. Why? For the hour of His judgment has come. Worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. And yet, by theological inference and comparing Scripture with Scripture, I think we're on good ground to say that this everlasting gospel was more than just a reminder of the soon coming Judgment. I want to suggest that there's more going on here. It's an example of what uh, my mentor, Dr. Staller, calls theological synthesis. In my view, the direct message to believers to hang on, judgment is near, really begins in the next verse, verse 8, and we'll get to that in a moment. But in verses 6 and 7, I see unbelievers in view. And let me give you a couple of reasons why I think this is the case. First of all, this verse comes immediately on the heels of the reference to the 144,000 in the first five verses. Well, who are they? Well, according to chapter 7, they were the missionaries who went throughout the world evangelizing and reaped a great harvest from every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. We see this in Revelation chapter 7. And this verse, of course, is immediately in the context of introducing the 144,000 witnesses. But if we go back to the text, just as the ministry of the 144,000 resulted in a harvest of souls from every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, the focus of the angelic evangelist is also people from every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Having just referenced the 144,000 and their faithful evangelistic work, the vision now turns to the urgency of the hour. In the waning moments of the tribulation, might say one minute before the second coming, God will use an angelic evangelist to share the message. It says, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel. Of course, the gospel is not a technical term in Scripture. As with all words, it's got to be defined in its context. But there are certainly are times in Scripture in the New Testament, where the term gospel is used to refer to that which must be believed in order to have eternal life. And I have a whole chapter on that in my book, Getting the Gospel Wrong. Uh, I think the reference to gospel here has evangelistic overtones. 
And by the way, it's worth noting that this is not the first time God has used an angelic messenger to Yuangalitso to announce good news, at both the first and in conjunction with the second advents of our Savior, and an, an angel announced the good news. If you go back to Luke 2, then an angel said to them, what? Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring good news to you. Yuangalitso, I proclaim the gospel. And notice, too, that this proclamation uh, of good news is to all people. And, this, and the proclamation that was accompanied by a declaration, too, of glory to God. Give God glory. Well, what do we see if we go back to our text in Revelation 14? They're saying, fear God and give him glory, for the hour of his judgment has come. Time is short. Believe the gospel. So when you compare Revelation 7, Revelation 14, and you take a look at Luke chapter 2 and the evangelistic context of all these passages, I think it's a reasonable inference that here in Revelation 14, 6, at the 11th hour, God is tasking an angel to make one final global gospel proclamation to the world before Christ comes back and separates the sheep from the goats, and it's too late for unbelievers. Of course, we can say with certainty, because the text tells us, that the message of the angel was to fear God. Yet, I believe this is just one aspect of his warning as he proclaimed the gospel the same way the 144,000 had, and the same way the angel did on the hills of Bethlehem south of Jerusalem at Christ's first advent. And let's not forget, by the way, the words of Christ himself as he described this future tribulation period to the disciples on the Mount of Olives when he said, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. This was fulfilled, I believe, primarily by the 144,000, but also at the very end, apparently by an angelic missionary who made sure that not one corner of the earth was overlooked in sharing the gospel just prior to the second coming of Christ. So we don't have a promise in Scripture that during the present church age, every unreached people group will hear the gospel. We have a mandate, we have a commission, a command to go into all the world and do that. But the doctrine of imminency tells us the rapture could happen at any moment. Indeed, if it were to happen today, and we hope it does, then there will be unreached people groups. There will be parts of this world that have not heard the gospel. But yet, we do have a promise in Scripture that prior to the return of Christ to establish the long-awaited kingdom, everybody on earth will hear the gospel. And I believe, if we go back to verse 7, that this is going to be accomplished in part by this angelic messenger. Time is short. Judgment is near. The clock is ticking. Believe the gospel. The angel spoke loudly, revealing his urgency and concern. We'll come back to that word loud in a little bit. It's a very common word in the New Testament, but it's particularly prevalent in the book of Revelation. This angel called everyone who dwells on the earth to fear God, to, to acknowledge their accountability to him, you might say. In the next section, we see a message with direct application for believers. For believers. To the tribulation believers in the future, we see the message, stand firm. In this section, John heard three more announcements that provide motivations for believers in that day to remain faithful to God and resist the beasts. Angels made two of the announcements, and a voice from heaven gave the last. The tribulation saints had that were still living had not crossed the finish line yet in terms of enduring to the end of the tribulation. They needed to hang on, keep trusting God. By giving them a glimpse of the future, they are energized and motivated to keep on keeping on. Remember again back in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus' words in Matthew 24, 13, He who endures to the end shall be saved. Those who survive until the end of the tribulation will be delivered, so-so, rescued, delivered, into the kingdom, in their physical bodies. This was more than just a statement of fact by Jesus. It was a word of encouragement, of motivation. Get ready. Things are going to be tough. Hold firm. Remember, he was answering the question, uh, having just rebuked the, the Pharisees and scribes and, and rebuked the, the temple. Uh, the disciples are thinking, well, when's the kingdom going to come? What will be the sign of your coming? When will we be able to throw off the shackles of Rome and usher in this long-awaited kingdom of peace and righteousness and justice? When will that be, Lord? And the whole Olivet Discourse speaks of that future seven-year period. In fact, Jesus even quotes Daniel by name. So it's not about the rapture. The church wasn't even revealed yet. 
The Olivet Discourse took place on Wednesday of Passion Week. The earliest reference in human history anywhere on planet Earth to the rapture is in the upper room on Thursday night, John chapter 14, when Jesus alludes to it with his disciples. We don't see the rapture in the Olivet Discourse. We see all of the signs that Jesus gives that will accompany and indicate his second coming. But Jesus says, he who endures to the end, that word endures is a word that should be familiar to all of us, hupomeno, to resist, to hold one's ground, to not be moved. It's used 17 times in the New Testament, usually translated endure, but the idea is to be tested and pass. It's used twice in James. James says, blessed is the man who endures a temptation. James chapter 5, he says, we count them blessed who endure, hupomeno. Peter puts it this way, for what credit is it when you are beaten by, for your faults you take it, if you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer and take it patiently, that is commendable before God. That phrase, take it patiently, there in the New King James is one word, hupomeno in Greek. And that's exactly what believers who would still be alive at this point in the tribulation needed to do. They needed to be patient, hang on a little longer. It will be worth it all. So again, in this section, God's word provides motivation for those believers who are still alive just before the second coming. Verse 8 says, the first motivation is Babylon will come crashing down. Another angel followed saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. This is the first mention of Babylon in Revelation, and it's another proleptic message that anticipates or foreshadows Babylon's fall which is described in detail in Revelation chapter 18. The repetition of fallen is for emphasis, and the aorist tense of this verb stresses the certainty of an action that has not yet happened in time, but will. And I believe, as I know many of you do, the reference is to literal rebuilt Babylon. I recommend Dr. Andy Wood's excellent resources on this topic, uh, and I think I saw that he's got some of his books out there. But I want to take just a moment to summarize the role of Babylon in the end time so that we can really appreciate how encouraging it will be for those who are alive just before the second coming to know that Babylon's reign of terror is coming to an end. So Babylon is the seat of the Antichrist's power during the tribulation. We talk a lot about this again in that Spirit of the Antichrist series. We just finished that last fall, so I it's on my mind. I'm not trying to sell anything. I'm just letting you know that it was a very powerful, lengthy uh, series that we did. But what is Babylon? Well, the illustration that I've heard used, and I think it's helpful, is the one uh, uh, out of uh, the movie Jaws. If you remember Steven Spielberg's uh, uh, Jaws movie, they filmed Jaws actually on Martha's Vineyard. I don't know if any of, many of you knew that. I've actually preached on Martha's Vineyard. Believe it or not, there's a Bible-believing, grace-oriented church on Martha's Vineyard, if you can imagine such a thing. And, um, but I went and saw this dock in this little area where they filmed much of that uh, movie. So when someone says, for example, that the movie Jaws emanated from Hollywood, they're, they're right, but they might also say the movie Jaws came out of Martha's Vineyard. And in both cases, they would be right. Similarly, Babylon will literally be rebuilt, but it will have its political, religious, and economic tentacles of influence throughout the world. Geographically, politically, I believe it refers to the headquarters of the beast, literal rebuilt Babylon. Religiously, perhaps it could refer to the seat of the one world religion and the apostate church, perhaps Rome. Uh, what about uh, economically? refers to the center of the world commerce and power during the tribulation. If that were to happen, if the rapture were to happen today, um, perhaps that would be New York City. Now we don't know the Lord's timetable. If the Lord tarries much longer, uh, we might not have a United States. In fact, as I preach at prophecy conferences, I remind people all the time, has it ever occurred to you that if the Lord tarries is coming much longer, you might be raptured as a Chinese citizen? And I'm not kidding. You know, we have this American exceptionalistic view and think that it's all about us. Uh, America's only 240 some odd years old in the grand scheme of 6,000 years of human history. Uh, now, America's the greatest country the world's ever seen, done more for the advancement of the gospel than any country in history, but we're not under any kind of special divine protection. So. But the point is, 
And, and the point that the, that the book of Revelation is giving here in this proleptic is that Babylon will fall. And that will provide great motivation to believers to stand firm. We go back to the text. The second motivation uh, to stand firm for believers is this. All who worship the beast will face eternal damnation. Now, the goal of this warning is to alert potential beast worshipers to their doom. If they follow the beast, uh, and, and then to encourage believers to remain faithful. And, and here's how the motivation works. The beast may kill people who do not follow him, but those who follow the beast will receive worse judgment from God, eternal judgment. The combination of Wrath, as you see there, if anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God. And then the word indignation, which is poured out of full strength in the cup of his indignation. Wrath is thumos, indignation, orge, stresses the, the, the reality and the severity of God's judgment. Normally people added water to wine to dilute it, but here God will not weaken his punishment of beast worshipers. It will be full strength. Believers, of course, never have to fear the wrath of God. Jesus reminds us, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. In Romans 5, we read, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we are saved from wrath through him. In Colossians, Paul says, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon who? The sons of disobedience. In contrast, to the believers there in Colossae, as indicated by the fact he said, in which you yourself once walked. 1 Thessalonians 5, of course, Paul promises, for God did not appoint us to wrath, speaking there of the prophetic day of the Lord's wrath. So this is a very important principle, this notion of God's wrath as it relates to unbelievers, not believers. And it's often overlooked uh, by believers, I find, the distinction between punishment and discipline. So a quick side note, God's punishment is always associated with his wrath and justice. God's punishment is for unbelievers. Believers are never punished. It's always exercised for unbelievers in justice. It's because they rejected Christ. It involves God's wrath. It's not for their good. It's for their condemnation. And it occurs both now and in eternity. By contrast, God's discipline is for believers. It's always exercised in grace because we disobey. It involves God's love, not his wrath. It's for our good. It's for our correction, not condemnation. It's only on earth. So I would encourage you to think through that distinction and think through the terminology that we use. I hope you uh, can, can uh, think through this issue a little bit more. We don't punish our children, for example. We discipline them. Right? And we have this chart and, and some others that relate to it in our uh, Not By Works chart book at our resource table. But back to the text, it says, And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. An endless trail of ascending smoke is the constant reminder of the permanent misery of unbelievers. The temporary judgments of beast worshipers under the coming bold judgments will be replaced by the judgment that is eternal. If the ceaseless praise of the Lamb by the living creatures back in Revelation 4 and 5 is eternal, so must be the punishment of these unbelievers, since the same phrase is used, forever and ever. Doctor, the late Dr. Bob Thomas says, quote, Revelation 14.11 is the most horrible picture of eternal punishment in the entirety of Revelation. And Leon Morris says it much more eloquently and academic sounding than I could ever say it when he says, quote, the modern vogue of dispensing with hell has no counterpart in Revelation. That's pretty eloquent and, and academic sounding, isn't it? Don't you like that? When someone comes up to me and tries to suggest that there's no eternal hell or no eternal punishment, I say with great sophistication and poise, you're an idiot. So I don't know. Uh, Leon Morris is a little more respectable. But indeed, the Bible is clear that the eternal dwelling place of the unredeemed is a place of eternal torment. For example, in 2 Thessalonians, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction, in that day. Jesus himself, as we talked about earlier, said these will go into everlasting punishment. Or 2 Peter 2.17, speaking of the unbelieving false teachers, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. 
Or in Revelation chapter 20, uh, the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. This is at the end of the millennium where the beast and the false prophet are, by the way, notice the beast and the false prophet are still there. When were they cast into uh, the lake of fire? Well, they were cast in at the second coming. And what's he talking about in Revelation 20? He's talking about Satan. A thousand years or more, a thousand years and 75 days anyway, later, and they're still there being tormented. They weren't annihilated. They've been there for a thousand, they will be there for, forever. Uh, tormented day and night forever. But back to the text, the third motivation to stand firm for believers during this time is that it is better to experience the beast's uh, persecution, even martyrdom, than God's punishment. I mean, this is the essence of the, the whole concept of the motivation that John is trying to reveal here. A voice from heaven told John to record that it would be a blessing for believers who live during the tribulation to die as martyrs. In view of their hope, believers in the tribulation should persevere in obedience and trust and good works and faith in God. Of course, you know, this is an encouragement to persevere, not a guarantee that all believers will persevere. Obedience to God's commands and continued trust in Jesus will see the faithful through those days of tribulation. From now on, he says, here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus that I heard. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. These martyrs will be especially blessed because through their death they will escape the worst of the beast persecutions in the final days of the tribulation. And then he goes on to say, yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. They will receive a unique blessing reserved for no one else. I love the way J. Vernon McGee comments on this verse. God does not save anyone for, for his works, but he does reward us for our works. Our works, good or bad, are like tin cans tied to a dog's tail. We cannot get away from them. They will follow us to the famous seat of Christ. And then there's one final target audience here in chapter 14, and that is the earth as, as a whole. Having addressed the 144,000, well done. The tribulation unbelievers, time is short, and the tribulation believers stand firm. The focus now turns to the earth as a whole, ripe for the harvest. And I looked, yet again, marks a new scene and an advance, uh, in, in this advancement of his topic. And the whole description is very similar to Daniel's prophecy of Messiah's second coming. I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle, ripe for the harvest. The judge, Jesus, then judged those on the earth. This judgment will occur at the end of the tribulation. Again, this is a proleptic description of what Revelation will describe further in its sequential unfolding of events when you get to chapter 16 and then into chapter 19 in particular. Another angel came out of the temple crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, thrust in your sickle and reap for the time has come for you to reap for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth and the earth was reaped. The harvest is an Old Testament figure used often for divine judgment. We see it here in Jeremiah 51. The time of her harvest will come. Jesus also likens the final judgment to the harvest of the earth. In the wheat and tares parable of the kingdom, the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Jesus himself said, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself, and has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. If we go back to our text, then another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle, and another angel came from the altar who had power over fire, and he cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle to gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. The prophet Joel speaks of this judgment in a similar manner. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, go down, for the wine press is full, the vats overflow, their wickedness is great. So the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. The winepress was trampled outside the city. The city there is Jerusalem. It can't be Babylon since the city itself escapes judgment. 
And we already saw that the city of Babylon is utterly destroyed. And blood came out of the winepress up to the horses' bridles for 1,600 furlongs. The Old Testament predicted that a final battle would take place near Jerusalem in the valley of Jehoshaphat. And we read here, blood will literally flow up to the height of horses' bridles, about four and a half feet, in some places in that valley. Obviously, a lot of people are going to have to die for that amount of blood to flow. This is talking about the Battle of Armageddon. And blood came out from the winepress of God's wrath for a distance of about 184 miles, if you do the math. So this is, again, a prophetic view of the major events yet to come from John's perspective in the vision. But it provided motivation. And it reminds us that the earth's final uh, harvest is at hand. And of course, in Revelation 19, when Christ dump, does come back, one of the most powerful passages in all of Scripture, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And then we move into the short chapter, Revelation 15, just eight verses sort of giving us a prelude of the harvest. And I call this a drum roll, please. It happens sort of again right in conjunction with chapter 16. It's like an introduction to the bold judgments in chapter 16. And again, this is not drawn to scale. We're right at the very end of the tribulation at this point. But this uh, uh, drum roll, please, is, is kind of not necessarily the best way to describe it because, you know, you think of a drum roll and it often alerts audiences that some big announcement or positive events about to happen and, and Revelation 15 is nothing of the sort, is portending doom. It, it's really more akin, if I can uh, use another Jaws illustration, chapter 15 of Revelation is more like that unforgettable music in the motion picture Jaws that alerted moviegoers that something terrible was about to happen. You know, I was just a kid uh, when, that, uh, when that movie came out, and for some reason that I've yet to, 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 to figure out, my parents thought it would be a good idea to take me and my little sister to see the movie Jaws in the theater. I still remember literally taking my baby blanket with me to, to see this movie. And it left an indelible mark, as, as you can imagine, but who can forget that music? You got me my volume up? I guess you can forget that music. We tested it. We got, we got audio? Oh, well. Anyway, we could probably all say it, right? <laughs> but that's really what chapter 15 is. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. This is the prelude to those bold judgments. They sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. After these things I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was open, and out of the temple came seven angels, having the seven plagues clothed in pure bright linen, having their chests girded with golden bands. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power. Can you get the scene? Of course, we won't be there because we're not appointed to suffer wrath, but for those who are. This is leading up to that climactic moment in human history. No one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. And then we get into chapter 16 and the bowl judgments. And so here we are right at the very end of uh, the tribulations. I believe it takes place probably within certainly a few days. It doesn't seem like it can be much more than that when you read the description of these bowls as we're going to see in just a second. But they dovetail right directly into the battle of Armageddon, preparing the way for this battle. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on earth. This is that word loud that I talked about a second ago. It's the Greek word megas. 
It's used 242 times in the New Testament, nothing particularly special, but what's interesting is that it's used 82 times, one-third of its usages, in the book of Revelation. It means exceedingly great, strong, or important. Megas. It's where we get the English word mega. Now, in English, when you say something is mega, it's trying to get your attention, right? Mega bucks, more than just a little bit of money. A mega hurricane, you know, bigger than all other hurricanes. Megaplex theater. I mean, lots and lots of screens, not your ordinary theater. Or what about this uh, one? I don't know why I had Jaws on the, the mind when I was preparing this presentation. I, th I told you it left an indelible mark on me. But, but anyway, the movie that came out in 2018, the movie The Meg, right? You remember, here's some posters, marketing posters from that. But to get a sense of just how big the shark was in The Meg, you have to really see it in context. So here we see a, a diver on the far right. Then we see Jaws, the great white. And then we see... The Meg, and if you if you follow the usage of this word and you follow the flow of thought in the book of Revelation, chapter 6 to 18, what we find out is this is essentially the seals, this is the trumpets, and then now we're about to get to the bowls. It's massive. It is the, the great day of the Lord's wrath, the overflowing scourge, unlike anything the earth has ever seen. The bold judgments are not just big, they're enormous. They're mega judgments that usher in the reign of Christ. The bold judgments come in swift succession, one right after the other. In contrast, each of the seal and trumpet bowls ended before the next one began. So what are the bowl judgments? By the way, in my eschatology text, What Lies Ahead, we have a whole chapter on uh, the seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments. But I have to warn you, there's an unfortunate typo that one of my students uh, pointed out uh, in one of the places where I'm talking about the bowl judgments. And the editor didn't catch it, and unfortunately, a bowl in that case is spelled B-O-W-E-L. And it looks like the bowel judgments, which I assure you are something altogether different. Uh, I can't be sure what they are, but I think it has something to do with Taco Bell. But anyway, um, uh, these plagues one scholar has said, are God's answer to Satan's last and greatest effort to frustrate the divine rule. The first one is ugly and painful sores. Ugly and painful sores. We read in verse 2, the first went out and poured out his bowl upon the earth, and a foul and loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast. Whereas the first four trumpet judgments fall on man's environment rather than on man himself, the first bold judgment will fall directly on man, resulted in some uh, foul, ugly, harsh, dangerous is the idea there, and loathsome, meaning painful, vicious, miserable sores that break out on the beast worshipers. Warren Wiersbe said, quote, It's an awesome thought to consider almost the entire population of the world suffering from a painful malady that nothing can cure. Constant pain affects a person's disposition so that he finds it difficult to get along with other people. Human relations during that period will certainly be at their worst. And then all sea life is destroyed. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea and it became blood as of a dead man and every living creature in the sea died. Not just one third as with the second trumpet judgment, but all sea life. All fresh water is destroyed. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. All freshwater sources, springs, rivers, lakes, become blood. People can't exist very long without water to drink. And I heard the angel of the waters uh, saying, you are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be, because you have judged these things, for they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. So John here, you know, hears praise of God in the heavens and sort of interrupts his narration of the outpouring of those bowls of wrath just briefly. The angel of the waters evidently refers to the angel responsible for the sea and fresh water, the, the superintendent of God's water department, you might say. Scripture reveals that angels and demons can affect the elemental forces of nature. By the way, it's, it's not just the U.S. government that can change the weather with its geoengineering operations like solar radiation management, atmospheric aerosol injection, cloud albedo enhancement, chemical ice nucleation, sprayed particulate trails, and more. 
Don't believe me? Check out part seven in Spirit of the Antichrist. 45 minutes showing you undeniable proof that that's what we've been doing now for 70 years. But he says it is their just due. God poured out blood on the earth dwellers because they poured out the blood of his saints and prophets. He makes the punishment fit the crime. Pharaoh tried to drown the Jewish boy babies, but it was his own army that eventually drowned in the Red Sea. Haman planned to hang Mordecai on the gallows to exterminate the Jews, but he himself was the one hanged on the gallows, and his family was exterminated. King Saul, if you remember, refused to obey God and slay the Amalekites, so he was slain by who? An Amalekite. So we see the earth getting its just due. I heard another angel from the altar saying, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. God always judges consistently with his character. And the fourth bold judgment, the world's climate is altered so that the sun scorches people. So it turns out Al Gore was right. <laughs> then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and power was given him to scorch men with fire and men were scorched with great heat. You know, the fourth trumpet judgment had darkened to the sun, but this judgment does the opposite. It increases the sun's intensity. Yeah, global warming. A climactic changes are going to take place, resulting in the sun's heat becoming much hotter than normal. Nevertheless, instead of repenting, the beast worshipers curse God. They blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. Again, Dr. Bob Thomas points out this is the only chapter in the visional portion of Revelation that speaks of widespread human blasphemy, the other references being to blasphemy from the beast. But these men have now taken on the character of the God, little g, whom they serve. They blame God for the first four plagues rather than blaming their own sinfulness. Number five, unusual darkness comes over the whole earth. The fifth angel poured out his bowl and his kingdom became full of darkness. Full of darkness. And perhaps, undoubtedly, really, the darkness will exacerbate their souls, making it harder for them to treat the pain. You, you've ever been in, in pain and, and you can't see to find you know, the, the Tylenol or you can't see to find something that's dark? It just makes it that much worse. And then, of course, the sixth bowl is the preparation for Armageddon, the final eschatological battle, the great river Euphrates and its water dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. The Euphrates River is the northeastern border of the land God promised to Abraham's descendants, and now God dries up this river that had previously turned into blood so that the kings of the east can cross with their armies. God had earlier dried up the Red Sea so the Israelites could advance on the Promised Land from the west. He also dried up the Jordan so they could cross over from the east. Elijah parted the waters of the Jordan. Cyrus may have conquered Babylon by draining the Euphrates. But the drying up of the Euphrates will be an immediate help to those advancing armies, but it sets them up for defeat, as was true of Pharaoh's army. Based on the description we read in chapter 14, verse 20, where the blood flows for 184 miles, we can see here from the top of the screen to the bottom in dark blue, that's the representation of about 184 miles. And then we read, I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, out of the mouth of the false prophet. These next few verses give further comments about the sixth bold judgment. They reveal that rulers from all over the earth will join the kings of the east in a final great conflict. The unholy trinity of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet will join in making a proclamation that will mobilize the armies of the world to converge on Palestine. This idea of something proceeding from their mouth suggests a proclamation. This is the first mention of the false prophet, but he's clearly the beast from the sea in the latter part of Revelation chapter 13. So this is the climactic moment in the Luciferian conspiracy that has been at work for millennia. I talk about this in, early on in the series Spirit of the Antichrist, but Satan is conspiring with demons, human agents, together to try to take over the world. If you don't believe that, you're, you're, not, you're reading a different Bible. Satan's wanting to take over this world from the beginning, and he's using his demons, one-third of the angels who fell, as well as human agents uh, to do so. I diagram this out in, and explain kind of each one of these, but there are literally six or eight families who pray to Satan, talk to Satan, worship Satan, and get their marching orders from Satan. We don't know who they are. They, they're not the people that Fox News says are bad or CNN says are bad. Or, you know, they're not... Those people, you never see their face, but they're Satan worshipers, co-conspirators with Satan to take over the world. 
into the second tier, you've got hundreds of thousands of people, many of whom don't even realize they're part of a satanic conspiracy, seeking to usher in a one-world system. And then at the third level, you've got millions, most of whom are completely compartmentalized and have no idea that they're part of a larger agenda. But in the final moments of this Luciferian conspiracy, you see this unholy trinity of Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet coming together to do this final, final battle. A thousand years before Christ, King David talked about the Luciferian conspiracy when he said, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. This has been going on since Satan was kicked out of heaven. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. The three unclean spirits that proceed from their mouths, the agents of this diabolical tree, are demons. They resemble frogs in that they're unclean and loathsome, but they deceive people. What they urge them to do for their advantage results in their ultimate destruction. And these kings from all over the world will gather to destroy Israel. Satan's purpose in bringing all these soldiers into Palestine in the first place appears to be to annihilate the Jews. And when Christ returns to the earth, specifically the Mount of Olives, they will unite in opposing him. However, God's sovereign hand will be regulating Satan's activities, and this will not be the day of Satan's triumph, but the triumph of our Lord God Almighty. He will show himself supreme in this climactic battle, and we see that description in Revelation 19, 11. To 16. Jesus Christ himself will, is the one who gives this parenthetic invitation and warning. We're getting closer and closer to that one minute before the second coming. Behold, I am coming as a thief. Behold, as he watches and keeps his garments, lest, blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And they gathered them together to the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. The second coming will be as a thief and that it will be sudden. His enemies will not expect it. Jesus used similar watchfulness language in the Olivet Discourse, not because the second coming is imminent. It most certainly is not. We have very detailed uh, teaching in Scripture on what will precede the second coming, and yet the deception will be so strong that those alive at that time will still not see it coming. So those are the bold judgments, and then we end with the worst earthquake in the history of mankind. When the seventh angel pours out his bowl and the voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, it is done. The final judgment has the greatest impact of all since the, the very air which the angel pours out his judgment upon is what we breathe. It's what humans breathe. And the loud voice is again God's since it comes from the throne in the heavenly temple. God announces with this bold judgment that his series of judgments for this period in history is complete. And William R. Newell said these very sobering words. Men would not have the Savior's it is finished on Calvary, so they must have the awful it is done from the judge. There were noises and thunderings and lightnings, and there was such a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake, as had not occurred since men were on the earth. Now, the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Then every island fled away, and the mountains were not found, and great hail from heaven fell upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent that's about a hundred pounds. Men blasphemed God because of the plague of hail since the plagues that since that plague was exceedingly great. In spite of the severity of the judgment and its cataclysmic character, the hardness of human hearts is revealed in that final sentence. They cursed God on account of the plague of hail because the plague was so terrible. With the final destruction coming from the seventh bowl of the wrath of God, the stage is then set for the dramatic and climactic second coming of Christ that we read about in chapter 19. Of course, before that, if you read on in Revelation, you see a detailed description and discussion of Babylon in chapters 17 and 18. Three applications that we can take away from 
these powerful passages in Revelation that bring us up to one minute before the second coming. First of all, God is just. God is just. You know, it may not seem like it in this present evil age, but God will recompense. Justice will be served. Evil will be punished. And that's what makes the tribulation, as awful as it is, a uh, message of hope because it reminds us that all of the inequities and unfairness of life will be made right someday. God is just. The second application is believe in Jesus. Because we don't know when the rapture is going to happen and more than uh, going to happen and more than that we don't know if we're even promised tomorrow. So even if the Lord carries his coming, you you don't know what, when your next your last breath will be. And you don't want to have to face the eternal wrath of God. The Bible teaches there's only one way man can be saved, that's by faith alone and Christ alone. And I don't know who all is in here and uh, speaking at this conference before, uh, I know sometimes you have uh, people that come in here providentially and may not know the Lord. So if you're here today and you're not certain you'll spend eternity in heaven, let me implore you, trust in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died and rose again for your sins. He's the only one who can forgive sin and give you the gift of eternal life. And then for the rest of us, the final application is, doesn't it seem like after reading through that section of Scripture that the rapture truly is a blessed hope? What a hope. What a hope. Aren't you glad that we'll be rescued before the great and terrible day of the Lord's wrath? So I want to encourage you to stop by and, and say hello to me and my kids and my wife at the table. I'll pick up the Spirit of the Antichrist DVD. You can read on the back all the different topics of the 18 things, see if something interests you there. We have two new books that have come out since I was last here. One of them is the top 10 reasons some people go to hell and the one reason no one ever has to. And then the other is weekly words of life. And then I also want to encourage you to check out David Fiorazzo's new book, Canceling Christianity, Not by Works Ministries, has been canceled multiple times. We've had eight or ten videos banished from YouTube. About eight months ago, we quit using YouTube because we couldn't count on our stuff staying up there. So we do everything internally now on our own website. All of our live streaming, podcasting, everything is available at notbyworks.org or the Not By Works uh, app. So thank you for uh, your attention and for allowing me to share my heart in this message today. Thank